0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Violet Podcast. Last week we recorded the first part of this episode in which we discussed the history of the area known either as the Levant, the Holy Land or Israel and Palestine. This week we're going to get into the conclusions we can draw from that history and the more sort of theoretical side of the conflict so we discuss the different groups that are involved in the conflict and the different solutions that are proposed to it as well as the different ideologies and worldviews that the conflict throws up we hope this really helps with people to clarify their thinking about the conflict we hope this is a useful resource for you to share with other people and we hope you enjoy listening to it Even across the two episodes, it's highly likely that we haven't covered everything which you wanted us to talk about, so please, if there's anything else that you'd like to ask us, or anything else that you'd like to tell us, do get in contact with us through Twitter at at underscore theviolet underscore, via our email address, which is contact.theviolet at gmail.com, or on our website. Thanks for listening.
1: Okay, so just to recap what's been happening over the past two weeks, and why this uh, current episode of intensified violence has taken place. Uh, the root of this is uh, a court case ruling in East Jerusalem in a neighborhood called Sheikh Jarab. And uh, Sheikh Jarab is home to several Palestinian families who moved there uh, between forty-eight and sixty-seven when the West Bank and East Jerusalem were under Jordanian authority, uh, displacing Jewish families who had previously lived there uh, and were expelled from the West Bank and East Jerusalem after the forty-eight war. Um, this court case seemed to be moving towards a judgment saying that those Palestinian families should be removed uh, and uh, the Jewish families that were expelled should be able to reclaim it. Of course, this is not contentious in itself uh, and it is nominally a property dispute. But the fact that uh, Jewish people or Israelis living in East Jerusalem and the West Bank uh, who had been expelled can claim a right to return. But Palestinians, the, the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians expelled in the Nakba from what's now Israel can't return uh, is fairly hypocritical. And that asymmetry and that hypocrisy led to significant tensions uh, in East Jerusalem. Uh, It led to protests against the Israeli authorities. Uh, Israel responded by um, firing tear gas and attacking protesters and also uh, people that were just peacefully praying in the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. Uh, In response, Hamas from the Gaza Strip decided to start firing missiles into Israel. Uh, Israel responded with the bombardment of Gaza. Since this is a very recent conflict and the statistics are are very contested, uh, we can't claim to give you absolutely accurate uh, factual nailed on numbers. Uh, But what is clear is that Israel in this bombardment killed significantly more Palestinians than Hamas killed Israelis uh, in their bombardment of Israel. Two days ago, um, a ceasefire was agreed between Israel and Hamas. Um, And that has brought an end to this current episode of intensified violence, although, of course, as we'll discuss in the episode, this does not mean that it has solved the conflict as a whole.
0: So that gives you a summary of what's been happening this year. But as we've said before, we're not the news. We're not here to just explain to you what's happening because there are a lot of places you can you can find that information. I think the, the conversation that needs to happen and the conversation that happens less often and is more difficult is the more theoretical, long-term, and actually more serious uh, discussion about given these events and given what is going on, How do we feel about it? What conclusions can we draw? Um, What conclusions are being drawn and what conclusions are acceptable? And we're going to start off, rather than sort of building up to big conclusions at the end of the podcast, we're going to start straight off by talking about Uh, The terrible ways in which this conflict is often seen, and the logical fallacies, the way in which people think about this issue, which are highly problematic, and which get in the way of any sort of possible solution. The first one of these is the idea that this is a two-sides conflict. That Israel is fighting Palestine, and that every individual, regardless of who you are, is either pro-Israel or pro-Palestine. And this way of thinking is not specific to this particular issue and this particular conflict. This is a way that people think about all sorts of complex political issues. And you don't necessarily need to know any details to realise that that simplification and that binary is just not true. Within the word Israel, we have the Israeli government. We have various different non-governmental groups campaigning for different uh, things who believe different worldviews. We have various Israeli citizens with various different ideas about how this conflict works and how it should work. We have Jewish Israelis, we have Arab Israelis. And on the other side, in the Palestinian side, we have different parts of what is now known as Palestine, the West Bank, Gaza, different political groups within those, different individuals and every single one of those people and those groups is going to think about this differently so we have to realize that there is nuance in this issue like any issue and it's not a binary monumental fight between two forces that we have to choose between and i think it's useful
1: to clarify that this is not us being both sidesist or succumbing to both sidesism. Um, what we're saying here is not that there are two sides who are equally guilty and both bad and, oh my god, how do we pick between them? We're saying that it is not useful to think of this conflict in terms of two binary sides. Um, to put a bit more detail on this, for for example, within what people would say is the Israeli camp, uh, you have obviously the government itself, which is currently... Well, which is currently in flux because they've just had an election and they're still in the process of coalition forming. Uh, but Netanyahu, the former prime minister's um, party, Likud, has 30 seats out of the 120 uh, in the Knesset. It's um, far short of a majority and obviously needs to go into coalition with other parties. And this is the norm for Israeli politics. Uh, because of the proportional system, parties just don't win majorities. Um so you have tens of parties within the Israeli parliament, the Nasser, who argue with each other and have different policies and different opinions and go into coalition in different forms um, over various parliamentary sessions. So you obviously have Netanyahu and the Likud party, which is a, a right-wing party. Uh, you have those in Israeli politics who are who are far to the right, uh, the Kahananists who are followers of Rabbi Meir Kahane, um, a Israeli religious political figure, now dead, uh, who advocated for ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. You have those who advocate for a two state solution. Uh, you have Arab parties in Israeli uh, Nessa in what's known as the Joint List. Uh, you have human rights groups like uh, Bethlehem uh, and Breaking the Silence, who quite routinely criticize the Israeli government, criticize the occupation, uh, criticize the actions of the IDF. Uh, Breaking the silence is actually an organisation formed out of uh, ex-IDF veterans who um, kind of tell stories or give information about their their tours in occupied Palestine and the the conduct of the IDF and quite routinely criticise it. I think another group which which should be mentioned because they do crop up a lot in not in uh, Israel and Palestine itself but in Western uh, protests regarding Israel and Palestine. Uh, is a orthodox Jewish group called Um And you will probably have seen photos of them uh, on Twitter or on social media. Uh, they're the very orthodox looking Jews uh, with the traditional black hats and the curly locks uh, holding Palestine flags and saying free Palestine um, and criticizing the Israeli government. Uh, and even though nominally they are on the quote marks pro-Palestinian side, uh, the actual position of Nusarikata is that Israel should not be established by human beings uh, because Israel is something that was promised to the Jews by God. So they believe Israel shouldn't exist, not because they are inherently against the idea of a Jewish state, but because they believe it should be established by God and the Messiah uh, and not by humans. So they actually believe when the Messiah does turn up, uh, Israel should be ethnically cleansed of Palestinians and a Jewish state should be established. Uh, And I think that that highlights one of the problems of thinking about this conflict in terms of sides where everyone who says, I am pro-Palestinian is automatically good or bad, depending on your viewpoint, and vice versa for um, those on the Israeli side.
0: And thinking about this conflict or any conflict in terms of two sides, regardless of whether you think they're equally bad, equally good, or or support one or the other, is dangerous because, as we've said, within those sides you have so many groups. And those different groups act in different ways, uh, believe different things. And so if you bundle together um, Israel as one thing, including every Israeli, every Jew, everyone who associates with Israel in every way, you're always going to be wrong about whatever belief you hold for those people or whatever statement you make about those people, because that label includes so many different people who've performed so many different actions, and there's always going to be evidence to um, refute any point you make. If you say Israel is a violent state, well, Within Israel, you're including uh, groups like the IDF, um, who have a history of abuse and oppression of, of Palestinian citizens. And you're also going to be including human rights groups like B'Tselem or Breaking the Silence, who campaign for the rights of Palestinians. And so you're going to be offending people, you're going to be lumping people together, and you're going to be inaccurate if at any point you state Israelis believe X, Israel is X etc and so we're not necessarily equating or necessarily coming down on one side here by saying it's not two sides it's multiple and within the label of israel there is a patchwork of different organizations and individuals but that's equally true of the label palestine
1: so within palestine there exist two main political parties uh fatah and hamas Um, and they quite neatly correlate with the territorial division uh, of of Palestinian territory into Gaza and the West Bank. So West Bank, or at least the parts which are administered by the Palestinian Authority, rather than by Israel, are generally governed by Fatah, which is a secular Palestinian party arguing for the creation of a secular Palestinian state. Uh, that is to say, one which does not have an explicitly uh, Muslim or Islamist character, taking into account the, I think, about 10% of Palestinians who are Christian uh, and any anyone else who would want to live in that state. Uh, Hamas, uh, on the other hand, is an Islamist party which also wants to create a Palestinian state, uh, albeit one with a specifically Muslim character and with Islam built into the framework of governance. And these two groups disagree with each other massively. Uh, there has been a lot of violence between them, a lot of, uh, a lot of killing and assassinations and political contestation. And um, they also have different views about how to engage with Israel. Uh, Fatah advocating generally for a two-state solution. Uh, Hamas a little more confrontationally arguing that Israel is entirely an illegitimate state uh, and must be entirely removed and destroyed and replaced uh, by a new Palestinian state. Um, So you have these two groups vying for control within the Palestinian Authority. You then have Palestinian citizens within the West Bank. You have Palestinians, uh, those who would define themselves as Palestinians living within the borders of Israel. Uh, You have the Palestinian diaspora in Lebanon and in Syria uh, and in, in Jordan and in many other parts of the world who all have different views on this issue. So again, we are not saying that Israel is good and Palestinians are bad or vice versa or that they are both bad or they are both good. What we're saying is that it doesn't make sense to think of these as unitary groups and that is the biggest obstacle to solving the conflict because if you think of the two sides as unitary groups, it's very, very hard to move forward with any negotiations to make any progress because it is then a zero-sum contest between one side winning and one side losing.
0: And... One way in which that sort of two sides-ism uh, is shown on the internet a lot is I've seen a lot of people over the last few weeks tweeting videos of atrocious violence perpetrated by Israeli security forces and by Israeli settlers and Israeli citizens and by Palestinian militants um, and the damage and devastation and human loss caused by both Israeli airstrikes and Hamas uh, rocket strikes. and it's important to separate out these groups and look at the amount of violence that happens. Because just because we're splitting these two sides in inverted commas into multiple different groups doesn't mean that we can then equate all of these groups, say they're all equally good or equally bad. We do still need to look at the violence that's happening. But anecdotal... Uh, evidence of violence is not helpful in coming to a conclusion because it doesn't take much research to see that lots of different people from lots of different groups within this conflict are being seriously injured and killed. And simply showing one video of a Palestinian being attacked for no reason is not helpful in coming to any sort of broad conclusion because that can equally be cancelled out by a video of an Israeli being killed in a rocket strike. So what we really need to look at are statistics. Now that's easier said than done because A, uh, the most recent bout of violence was very recent and good statistics take a long time to collect and B, even the statistics from previous years, from tens of years ago, are highly disputed by just about everybody. So I've had a look Uh, at lots of different uh, sources for this and the numbers disagree massively but the proportion, the ratio of Palestinian casualties to Israeli casualties over the last few years varies from around 5 to 1 to around 20 to 1 depending on who you ask but what is not up for debate and what must be made absolutely clear and is objectively true is that in this conflict, both in the most recent uh, session of violence and over the previous decades, Palestinians have been dying at a far higher rate than Israelis. Um,
1: so one of the reasons for the disproportionality in casualties is the fact that Israel has better defensive technology. I'm sure many of you will have seen on the news recently uh, Israel's Iron Dome system, uh, which has existed for over a decade now, I think. Uh, And it's a way of identifying incoming rockets, uh, pinpointing their location, and then within a fraction of a second, sending up a missile to intercept it. Uh, And over the last two weeks, the Iron Dome system has intercepted around 90% of Hamas rockets fired from the Gaza Strip. So one reason uh, for the the greater, sorry, the lesser number of Israeli casualties relative to Palestinian ones is that Israel simply has better technology to defend itself. Uh, another potential reason is uh, the idea or the, the the argument that Israel is a more violent state or has has perpetrated more violence uh, than Hamas in in relative terms. And whilst this is again a difficult thing to to quantify, it is it is clear that Israel by by bombing very densely populated areas in Gaza, uh, whether or not they are uh, attacking Palestinian militants or or Hamas positions is is inevitably going to cause significant numbers of civilian casualties. Again, this is, a, this is a tricky thing to answer. Even though Israel has caused more casualties, it doesn't in itself necessarily make Israel more, more responsible uh, for the conflict. There are other arguments might, that might suggest it but casualties in themselves uh, do not necessarily suggest that Israel is more guilty. If Hamas has the intention to kill many israeli citizens with their rocket attacks and israel is just better at defending them uh, leading to disproportionate casualties that in itself does not make israel more guilty of perpetrating violence Uh, however i think it is also important to look at other things uh, for example uh, violence by uh, israeli settlers and israeli security forces in the west bank uh, and the extent to which israel does not really prosecute idf members Uh, who have committed atrocities or it doesn't really investigate them, or where settlers attack Palestinian civilians, it doesn't um, really pursue those legally to the same degree uh, as Palestinians uh, attacking Israeli citizens. So those are other things that we we have to discuss when we're considering the disproportionality in violence uh, and the fact that the Israeli state either enacts or willfully turns a blind eye to violence against Palestinian civilians um, by non-state Israeli actors. Uh, whilst at the same time coming down very harshly on violence enacted by any Palestinian faction against Israelis.
0: And it's very rare that you hear this conclusion expressed with the right level of nuance anywhere in discussion of this this conflict that, that instead of equating uh, Israeli deaths with Palestinian deaths despite the fact that there are so many more Palestinian deaths instead of uh, arguing that Israel is in the wrong, that Israel is the sort of the antagonist uh, in this situation because there are a larger number of Palestinian deaths. it is possible to view death as problematic um, but lopsided. So what I mean by that is that if we start from the axiom that every human life is equally precious, we can't exonerate, Uh, Hamas's rocket strikes or uh, the Israeli Air Force or the IDF for their violence and the killing that they cause while still recognizing that there is an asymmetry and there is a lopsided uh, nature to this violence and that given that our aim in discussing this conflict should be to end human suffering and to end that violence, violence against Palestinians is a greater problem than violence against israelis but that does not for a moment mean that violence against israelis is not a huge problem as well or
1: to summarize this uh, any solution or any worldview which has a, a chance or hope of solving this conflict has to view israeli and palestinian lives as as equally precious um whilst at the same time acknowledging that palestinian deaths and suffering is a greater issue not because palestinian lives are worth more but simply because Palestinian deaths are happening more than Israeli ones. But any worldview which says, for example, that um, one Israeli death is worth 10 Palestinian deaths or it is is viable to kill Palestinians to to secure Israel or it is viable to kill a certain number of Israelis in order to secure Palestine
0: is a worldview which is doomed to fail in terms of a solution to this violence. So I feel like we've hammered home the point that Israel is not a single homogenous block that is equally responsible or in which everyone is equally responsible for all of its actions and the same is true of Palestine and we need to see uh, groups and parties within the conflict in all their colour and with a full patchwork of of actors and there is a second really important point that is only very subtly different to that and which sort of grows out of that uh, that we also need to, to sort of make clear, which is that there are as many uh, opinions and worldviews and conclusions and solutions that we can pull out of those myriad groups as there are uh, actors and thinkers on this topic. So just as this is not a fight between two actors, Israel and Palestine, there are also not two solutions, the Israeli solution and the Palestinian solution. And a very common refrain actually both on the the so-called pro-Israel
1: and so-called pro-Palestine side uh, of of this dispute is from the river to the sea. Uh, And the idea that there should be a single state from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, either under a blue and white uh, Jewish slash Israeli flag or under a green, black, red and white uh, Palestinian or, or Muslim flag is effectively one which is a call for genocide, regardless of whether that is a genocide perpetrated by Israelis against Palestinians or vice versa. And those absolutist solutions, I think, other than being wrong in and of themselves, because genocide is just not a good thing, uh, are also not solutions to the conflict. There is an argument that this is a process, which is Israel began with the Nakba, the uh, ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from what is now Israel and now is continuing with settlement building in the West Bank. Uh, If we continue down that route, we end up with a Levant, which is fully under Israeli authority and largely ethnically cleansed of Palestinians, which is obviously not a situation that we want to have, which is horrendous. Uh, And in reverse, if we were to reestablish or establish a Palestinian state from the river to the sea, you would end up uh, having to expel or ethnically cleanse large numbers of Jewish and Israeli citizens uh, living in that state. And for those people that would class themselves as on the pro-Palestinian side of the conflict, it has to be recognized that, That is not a viable solution for the reason that Israel would never accept it and the only way to enforce it would be through massive violence. And there does not exist uh, the, the military capacity amongst Palestine supporting states to dislodge Israel from that territory. So any kind of river to the sea solution, whether perpetrated by Israel against Palestinians or vice versa, is something which will only end up in genocide and cannot be said to be a viable solution
0: hopefully listeners will be picking up by now on the conclusion that we would like to think we head towards in all our podcast episodes, but which we're definitely heading towards in this one, which is that any sort of conflict like this or any political situation like this is extraordinarily complex. And to understand it fully, we have to go in with a nuanced mindset. We have to start thinking about it, ready for there to be more complications. And a large part of the problem is simplified uh world views which lump different ideologies and different groups of people together and end up exacerbating the problem so we've discussed how we should view the agents the actors the people involved in this conflict with nuance and split those into as many different groups as possible we've discussed briefly how we should do the same with ideologies and with worldviews, but we should also to a certain extent do the same thing with um, problems with specific issues within the broader conflict because the way in which the conflict between uh, israel and gaza operates and the way in which we might be able to solve and end that is potentially uh, subtly different to that of the West Bank, where settlements are occurring, and that of East Jerusalem, where Temple Mount and the Al-Aqsa Mosque are located. And this is not to say that they aren't
1: interlinked problems. Of course they are. Uh, As we saw in in the beginning of this round of intensified violence, it was displacement of Palestinians from East Jerusalem and violence perpetrated by Israeli security forces on Temple Mount, which led to Hamas firing rockets from Gaza into Israel. So there are clearly ties between them, but they are also different situations. For example, Israel withdrew all settlers from Gaza in 2005. Um, there had been you know, a few thousand uh, Israeli or Jewish settlers in Gaza. They were all taken out of, of Gaza in 2005 by the Israeli government as an attempt to disengage and return that to Palestinian governance. Um, And this wasn't, I think it's it must be said, a purely altruistic move. Uh, It was more born out of a calculation that uh, there could never be a Jewish majority in Gaza and it was demographically impossible to hold it. Um, And the settlers who left were compensated by the Israeli government. uh, And many of them also destroyed their property uh, as they left so that it could not come under the or it could not pass to to Gazans or Palestinians. Um, But in that instance, the Israeli government did also use force to evacuate those settlers who didn't want to leave Uh, and there are photographs from that operation of you know Israeli settlers in Gaza who didn't want to leave and wanted to stay and believed it was part of their birthright being removed literally in cages uh, by the Israeli government from Gaza. So Gaza is a different issue to West Bank uh, because Gaza doesn't face the same problem of what we would call or what we might call settler colonialism uh, or settler violence that's not the problem that Gaza faces. Gaza faces a problem of economic blockade, uh, of limited resources, um, of limited access to the outside world, uh, and has been subject to the the brunt of IDF violence uh, through bombing campaigns uh, and, and airstrikes. The problem in West Bank is different because in the West Bank you don't get large-scale Israeli airstrikes, um, you don't get um, the, the same level of, of military operations. Uh, but what you do have there is the problem of settlement building in occupied Palestinian land. So since the, the Oslo Accords in the 1990s, uh, the West Bank has been divided up into three areas, uh, Area A, Area B, and Area C. Area A is under Palestinian uh, civil and security governance. So uh, the Palestinian Authority administers those areas, but also is responsible for security. Uh, area B, um, which kind of surrounds Area A, is where the Palestinian Authority and Israel share uh, administrative responsibility. So the Palestinian Authority is largely responsible for day-to-day governance, but Israel is responsible for security, and the IDF operates heavily there. And in Area C, uh, that is under both Israeli security and administrative governance, and you know millions of Palestinians live there. Uh, but under effective Israeli rule. Um, And in those areas uh, building permits for for Palestinians are heavily restricted and often Palestinians who build homes or properties there uh, have them knocked down by the IDF as illegal properties. So in the West Bank the problem is one of settler colonialism and expanding Israeli settlements uh, and the fracturing of Palestinian territory uh, and like an inability to access water supplies um, from the Jordan River And the problem is entirely different to the one in Gaza. And then when we come to East Jerusalem more specifically, whilst that faces the general problems of uh, Israeli settlement that the West Bank does, it also has a heightened religious significance because of the location of the Old City of Jerusalem uh, and Temple Mount uh, in uh, East Jerusalem. Um, And that includes sites which are holy to the Jewish faith, like the the Wailing or the Weeping Wall, the last remnant, of the second temple destroyed by the Romans, uh, it contains the Church of the Holy Sepulchre which is sacred to, to Christians, uh, and it contains the Al-Aqsa and the Dome of the Rock mosques uh, which are very important to to Muslims. Um, and I think actually were the original direction of prayer before uh, Muhammad's uh, conquest of, of Mecca and the shifting of the direction of prayer to the Kaaba in Mecca. So these are all different problems, not to say that they're not related, but there are different solutions and different issues and different ways to approach them. And whilst they are interconnected, we have to be wary of approaching these with singular, uh, simplified, blanket solutions, which, because of the complexity of the problems, simply cannot work. And overlaid on top of all of this is... is uh, Are many other debates and uh, discussions and disagreements about the right of return, both for Palestinians and for Jewish people worldwide. So, this is a multi layered issue, and simple sloganeering is not going to solve
0: it. As well as um, simplified solutions that are unhelpful, there are also a lot of sort of conspiracy theories and strange beliefs. that a lot of people hold around this particular conflict and this particular issue which we need to dispel before we get into more sort of uh, nuanced and viable solutions. And the first one is the idea that Israel doesn't exist. Now this is a sort of singularly peculiar idea that is weirdly common among uh, so-called pro-Palestinians. because they believe Israel doesn't have the right to exist, or Israel is an illegitimate state, that it is simply not there. Um, And to some extent this is a sick joke, Uh, to some extent people do seem to believe this, Uh, and it's very easy to dispel, simply to point out that it's self-defeating of your own point of your own argument, If the suffering of Palestinians is an issue that's particularly close to your heart, and the Israeli government is obviously a major cause, not the only cause, but a major cause of the suffering of Palestinians, that denying the existence of the Israeli state suddenly leaves you scratching your head as to why Palestinians are suffering. Uh, Another common bad
1: idea is that any support for Palestine or Palestinians is anti-Semitic, and in in the same vein, any criticism of Israel Uh, or Israel's position is also anti-Semitic. This is obviously untrue. Uh, Obviously it is is possible to be anti-Semitic whilst criticising Israel if you claim that there is some kind of Jewish conspiracy to destroy uh, Islam or to destroy Palestine or that all Jews support it. That is obviously anti-Semitic. But simply arguing that Palestinians should have a state or a Palestinian state should exist or Palestinians should not be killed by the IDF, uh, none of that is anti-Semitic. It is merely an argument framed in the language of, of human rights and the desire to reduce human suffering. So any arguments for for Palestinian uh, autonomy or independence or, or rights which do not come at the kind of expense of Israelis or Jews saying like you know we need to to kill them in order to give Palestinians rights is entirely valid as an argument and not anti-semitic. Of course it is possible to be anti-semitic whilst, uh, whilst holding a so-called pro-Palestine position. There have been a lot of uh, kind of racist attacks on Jews in North London in the past week as a result of this, but that is by no means the bulk of the quote marks pro-Palestine position, uh, which is an argument for human rights and not one of anti-Semitism. And I think an extension of this point and and part of the, the reason this misconception exists is because symbols are ambiguous, and symbols don't always mean the same thing to every person, uh, and someone holding a Palestinian flag could well mean, and I think the majority of people holding a Palestinian flag just mean, I want Palestinians to stop being killed, I want Palestinians to have a state. Um, but some people brandishing that flag may use it as an argument for you know, removing uh, Israelis or removing Jews from the Levant and establishing a Palestinian state in its place Uh, and likewise many people holding an israeli flag might simply mean i want to live in that area Um, i want i want peace with palestinians i want a two-state solution and some people may be arguing for the complete expulsion of palestinians and ethnic cleansing and it's the ambiguity of symbols um, which makes it hard to pinpoint specific positions in this debate
0: a curious sort of characteristic of this conflict is the extent to which it does also garner a disproportionate level of emotion and um engagement from an extraordinary number of people around the world and we're not for a moment saying that it's not important and that the suffering of both israelis and palestinians isn't uh, a massive problem that needs a lot of our attention simply that there is a strange phenomenon which is bordering on anti-semitic of Uh, People being very, very quick to criticise Israel and to single out Israel as a sort of uniquely uh, oppressive state or a state that treats ethnic minorities within its borders um, with a sort of unique and unparalleled level of... Uh, violence and oppression, which is not necessarily true. Now this is not whataboutism. This is not us saying that the Israeli state uh, is, is guilt free because other states do this too, absolutely not. It's the opposite of that. It's to say, well, if you care about the suffering of Palestinians, which you absolutely should, you should care about that from the point of view of humanitarianism, of caring about the suffering of persecuted ethnic minorities wherever they may be, and that an obsession with human rights abuses by uh, the Israeli state, without also acknowledging human rights abuses against persecuted ethnic minorities in places like China and Myanmar and Eritrea and Sudan, just to name a few, does have a slight anti-semitic undertone to it and i think it's worth noting that
1: whilst this is commonly portrayed um as muslims being particularly anti-semitic and not caring about other human rights abuses i don't actually think this is the case because i think largely speaking um muslims who criticize israel's actions in palestine are also quite vocal in criticizing uh persecutions elsewhere so for example um, the persecution of the Uyghurs in uh, in China by the CCP, um, or the persecution of Syrian or the the, the mass murder of Syrian uh, civilians by the Assad government um, and by Russia. Uh, rather, I think this is a problem which is more common amongst not to, not to oversimplify, but white leftists who have a very dichotomous view of the world that anyone who is U.S. aligned is bad, and anyone who is uh, kind of against the U.S. is is good, and the U.S. is making up stuff about them. Um, another misconception is uh, that there is a big Jewish media conspiracy to cover up the conflict, or brainwash us, or stop us from realizing the extent uh, to which uh, Israel is perpetrating mass violence in the West Bank in Gaza, and in Palestine. And one small reason I think this exists. Uh, I think there are others. One small reason is that. There is a lot of bad journalism out there and bad journalism which fails to show nuance or understanding is easy to misconstrue as biased. Um, but I think it is also important to note that within the broad sweep of of media in the Western world, um, there is there, there does seem to be a tendency uh, to support Israel over Palestine or uh, to render things in passive versus active voice in a way which makes it seem like Palestinians have just died, uh, whereas Israelis have been killed. Uh, rather than noting that you know Israel has also actively killed Palestinians, they haven't just mysteriously died. To go further into this, I don't think this is because the Jews control the media, um, because as we've said previously, there are loads of Israeli human rights groups and Jewish human rights groups that B'Tselem or breaking the silence, which are, are vocally critical of the IDF. Uh, I think rather this is a product of the fact that it is easier for countries which are wealthier and more developed to control narratives. Um, and that can also be seen with countries like Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Uh, even though those are not Jewish countries, those are also able to sanitize or uh, or, or cover up uh, abuses which are committed by, uh, by the state um, and are able to portray those things in a certain way. So I don't think it's necessarily a product just of the fact that Israel is a majority Jewish state. I think another thing to note is that the media is not a homogenous block and within the media there are loads of people that are critical of Israel. Within the media there are loads of people who are very uncritical of Israel um, and it is not possible to say that the media as a whole, every single person, is either pro-Israel or anti-Israel. Nevertheless, as I said previously, I do think the majority of media outlets in the west do have a tendency to be pro-israel or to not report critically uh, on the actions of the israeli state that is more tied up with geopolitics than with the fact that israel is jewish because israel is a key regional ally of the uk and of the us and especially in the U.S., there is a big evangelical Christian lobby which has this weird obsession with Israel and a belief that establishing a Jewish state there is the precursor to the rapture and you know Jesus coming back from heaven and taking everyone up to be to be saved. Um, for those reasons, uh, because Israel is a Western ally, it tends to receive more favorable coverage. Uh, I don't think uh,
0: that this is because of a Jewish media conspiracy. In the final part of this podcast, we're going to discuss solutions. Now, we realise that solutions is quite a grand word and makes it sound like there is one particular sort of policy or idea that we can introduce. Click our fingers and everything will be alright. Everyone will be happy. And that's clearly not something that's going to happen. So we're using the word solutions quite broadly. But what we can definitely do is rule out some solutions that are definitely not going to work. As we said in the history episode in part one, and as we've said earlier in this podcast, um, there is not a historical right to the land. There is not one story of an ethnic group that somehow trumps another into an absolute right to a particular area of land, and there is not one religious group that is somehow... uh, more true, more fervently believed, or more valuable than another. And so before we start to look at specific solutions, we need to start from sort of two axioms, which are number one, everybody who currently exists, who currently lives in the Levant, in the Holy Land, whatever you want to call that area, has a right to be there and needs to be taken into account, and their uh, livelihood needs to be taken into account. And two... What we care about is not some high-minded ideal about some uh, long nationalist story or history. It's basic human suffering, holding the suffering of each individual, regardless of their religion, of their ethnic identity, and their national identity, as equal. And so when we're judging solutions and discussing solutions and trying to decide which is the best what we need to base that measurement and that judgment around is the extent to which they end the suffering that is occurring in a colorblind, religion-blind manner. And
1: whilst I do completely agree with this, I think it's important to, to recognize that any solution does not just have to deal with people that are currently living in the Levant. It also has to deal with Palestinians who were expelled from the Levant, Uh, in the Nakba and are now refugees in Syria and Lebanon and and Jordan and many other countries around the world and so any solution also has to deal with the suffering of those people who whilst not geographically resident in the Levant have within living memory um, a connection to the land Uh, and so my my view is that any solution or any fair solution or just solution has to include a right to return for anyone who has been expelled from the Levant, which is principally Palestinians and a very, very small number uh, of Jews. Uh, A question that one of our listeners submitted in advance of this podcast is, if we care about the people that are there now and not a historic mythologized right to the land, eventually Jewish migration will mean that the people there now will be a majority of israeli jews this is a really important point and i think uh, whoever the listener was that submitted this is absolutely correct and it's why the current pattern of settlement building makes it harder and harder for a solution to be reached because it further engineers uh, an israeli or a jewish majority in the levant which makes any kind of palestinian state building uh, or palestinian participation uh, in politics even harder and what we meant by saying we should care about the people that are there now uh, is not that we should endorse further settlement building uh, but that anyone who is already there realistically has to be taken into account in any future settlement Um, as a parallel to this uh, i i would invoke the case of south africa and apartheid because that is already uh, a case which is very commonly associated with israel and palestine Uh, And this is not necessarily just a moral argument, but a pragmatic one. Uh, In ending the apartheid regime, the ANC or Mandela's political party in their negotiations had to accept the fact that even though they believed the presence of white settlers in South Africa was was achieved through violence and displacement uh, and dispossession uh, of the various South African uh, indigenous ethnic groups like the Zulu, uh, for example, they they had to accept they were there and that if they tried to, in any kind of settlement, argue for an expulsion of those people, it would not have been possible to achieve a settlement. So this is as much a question of pragmatism as it is of moral or ethical correctness. Uh, if there are people that are there now, you may be able to convince some of those settlers to leave Israel, but the vast bulk of them you will not be able to and any solution short of a massive catastrophic, cataclysmic war has to accept that they are there. But I think our listener is absolutely correct. Further settlement building is absolutely an impediment to the peace process and it is the main thing. Uh, If there is any one thing I think Israel should stop doing uh,
0: that would make a peace easier to achieve. It's worth relating this to the point we made at the top of the podcast as well, that when we talk about people who are there, we're not splitting those into two uh, homogenous camps of Israelis and Palestinians, and that if there is a slight majority of one over the other, that doesn't necessarily mean anything, because both of those groups can be and should be split up into a multitude of different people and organisations with different beliefs. Um, what matters is that regardless of which ethnic or religious or nationalist group is in the majority, that uh, rights are equally given to all groups in a particular state. And one of the most important rights that we both believe should be extended fully is the right to return. And currently, Jewish Uh, families who previously lived in the area that is now Israel have the right to um, return and the right to become Israeli citizens, whereas Palestinians who were expelled during the Nakba do not. And that is the crux of the argument, rather than simple demographics and numbers, is not that one group might outnumber the other, but that one group uh, is privy to rights which the other group is not If we were to summarize the main schools of thought about
1: solutions to the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict, uh, they could be put into two camps. One uh, is the one-state solution, which is the idea that the entirety of the Levant, the area which is now called Israel and Palestine, should become a singular state in some format, and we'll break down the different variations of that in a second. The other set of solutions is the uh, two-state solution, uh, the idea that You should have an Israeli state with an explicitly Jewish character and you should have a Palestinian state. Um, Again there are variations on whether it should have an explicitly Muslim character or whether it should be a secular Palestinian state but they should coexist side by side in the area of the Levant. My personal opinion is that a two-state solution is not viable, uh, if it ever was. Uh, I think there are there are arguments that it could have worked in 1947-48, uh, something along the lines of what happened in India and Pakistan, uh, and the creation of two separate states, Israel and Palestine, side by side with population exchanges. Uh, of course, as we can see in the case of India and Pakistan, even though those now exist as separate states, uh, they, uh, or, or the process of creating them uh, involved incredible levels of violence with somewhere between one and two million people perishing uh, as populations crossed the border in either direction. So there is a possibility uh, a two-state solution might have worked in the distant past. Uh, at this point, I would say a two-state solution is functionally unworkable for the reason that I think we already have a de facto one-state solution on the ground. As Israel has expanded its settlement building uh, in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem, uh, and as it has extended its administrative and military control of the West Bank, there is not uh, the territory to create a functional Palestinian state. The areas under the control of the Palestinian Authority are scattered amongst more than 120 islands of land in the West Bank. Uh, it's a very fractured and disconnected uh, and disparate um, state if you could describe it as that Uh, and it's not something that could exist as a state in the modern sense of the world a Palestinian moving from one area to another uh, would have to pass through Israeli territory to get from one part of their country uh, to the other and would have to do that uh, in almost any instance of movement and the only way to avoid that in a two-state solution would be the withdrawal of all of the Jewish settlements or all of the Israeli settlements in the West Bank Now, whilst this was possible in in Gaza in 2005, there were only around um, 21 settlements in Gaza and around, I think, 8,000 settlers. Whereas in the West Bank and East Jerusalem today, there are upwards of 800,000 Israeli settlers altogether. Um, And it would be functionally impossible for for Israel or or for any Israeli government to remove all of them uh, simply because it would be impossible for any party that proposed that uh, to win the majority in the Nesert to do it. So, as, as a um, very famous Palestinian historian and author, Rashid Khalidi, says, we are already functionally in a one state solution. It is a one state solution uh, dominated by Israel. And my view is that the only viable solution to this conflict is a one state solution of a secular binational state uh, in which both Palestinians and Israelis can live. You can call it whatever you want, you can call it. The Federation of Israel and Palestine, for example, I think, is one of the proposed names. Uh, but the only way it could work is if it was a singular, binational, secular state which didn't have an explicitly Jewish character, uh, nor an explicitly Muslim one. There aren't really arguments for a for a Christian Palestine uh, that exists anymore uh, since the Crusades. Um, but it would be a single, secular, binational state in which everyone has equal rights regardless of religion. And the reason I think that is the only viable solution is firstly because a two-state solution is already dead uh, and secondly because the arguments over specific areas of land and specific locations and specific uh, areas of interest are so intense and so intractable that it would not be possible to decide on the borders of two states, an Israeli and a Palestinian one. Uh, The only way or the best way to minimize human suffering in the long run would be to have that single state where both Palestinians and Jews could live.
0: And hopefully listeners will also be able to add arguments uh, to this idea from previous podcasts that we've done. One of the things that we talked about in the Nationalism and India podcast episode a few weeks ago was the fact that the world cannot be divided up into boxes of homogenous ethnic and national and religious groups, and that attempts to do so are either going to have to make completely incongruous Uh, non-viable states that divide towns and roads and apartment blocks between different people um, or are going to end in mass violence like partition in South Asia in the 1940s where people millions of people caught on the wrong side of borders um, face horrific oppression in the state that they are in and on top of that there is no reason to divide the world into states which have the intrinsic either nationalist or ethnic or religious character of the majority group within that area and hopefully one of the things that some uh, western european and north american countries have shown Uh, in recent decades is that multiculturalism is a perfectly good way of running a country. That having a multitude of different ethnicities and a multitude of different religions within a country is not inherently wrong and functions as long as that country is a secular state with a liberal democratic system which upholds and enshrines freedom of religion and what matters for any given individual anywhere in the world is the right to express and maintain their cultural identity to practice their own religion without persecution and whether their neighbors practice the same religion and whether their neighbors um maintain the same cultural identity is completely irrelevant and any attempt to uh break the world into different groups is a impractical and b immoral that situation will not occur if we try to divide the world into homogenous blocks.
1: Of course, what we've said here in terms of a solution is the ideal endpoint and is not the process in itself. And the process has to involve negotiation and discussion between the Palestinian Authority and Israel and different factions within each polity and other important Middle Eastern and global states and the UN. Uh, But this is what we think is the ideal endpoint. It is not viable to have a two-state solution for for the reason that 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 ship has sailed, so to speak. Uh, And nor would a singular state, which is explicitly uh, Israeli and Jewish in character, or explicitly Palestinian, would be able to safeguard the rights of the other minority. So our proposed ideal solution would be for a secular, binational state
0: that seems like a good point to end on and is really all we have time for but of course there are loads of things that we haven't discussed there are lots of possible short-term policies that we haven't managed to get into Uh, and as the central kind of conclusion of this was that this conflict is far more complicated than most people give it credit for we have to admit that there are a huge number of complications we have not managed to address so please do um Get in contact with us if you've got any further questions or anything else you'd like to discuss either through Twitter to our handle at underscore the violet underscore via our email address which is contact.theviolet at gmail.com or through our website. We really hope that this has been a valuable uh, episode. Please do share it with anyone who you feel would benefit from hearing it and we hope you'll join us again next week. Thanks for listening.